Hey guys, welcome to the next chapter. It's Prim's to Rip It Pat. Yes, the show went on a little hiatus, but we are back and the show will officially relaunch within the next several weeks. In season two of the next chapter, we will have a fresh new lineup of guests and we will talk about a range of topics from retirement and the struggles and transitioning away from sport, of course, to preparing for the Olympics, to addiction, to familial struggles, including the death of a parental figure and how that affects an athlete's development. We will cover it all. But for now, please enjoy this special episode as boxing analyst Dan Raphael and I discuss ABC News' latest documentary on Mike Tyson, now available on ABC and Hulu. Today's conversation is about the journey and evolution of one of the best heavyweight boxers of all time, the baddest man on the planet, Mike Tyson. Tyson won his first 19 professional fights by knockout and at just 20 years old, became the youngest heavyweight champion in history. He'd later become the first heavyweight boxer to hold the WBA, WBC, and IBF titles simultaneously and was the undisputed world heavyweight champion from 1987 to 1990. Inside the ring, there was no denying his ferocity and athletic gifts. Outside the ring, however, his story is one that's filled with complexity, pain, and trauma all of which, one might argue, contributed to his path in becoming a convicted felon and rapist. In a four-hour, two-part documentary, Mike Tyson, The Knockout, ABC News chronicles the climb, the crash, and the comeback of Tyson's boxing career. The docuseries follows his entire journey from his childhood in Brooklyn, New York, to the present as he rounds a corner to his 55th birthday. Michael Gerard Tyson's story, I think, really encapsulates what my show is all about, how athletes cope with various life transitions, and also how one's personal narrative, including their issues, are so deeply intertwined in who they are as an athlete and who they become as an athlete. For Tyson, it was the fear he experienced as a child, and being surrounded by drugs, sex, violence, and constant threat It was that fear that turned him into a champion inside the ring, but also a bully and an abuser outside sport. And if you pay close attention to the sequence of events, it's no surprise that when something terrible happened in his personal life and boxing wasn't there to pull him out, that's when he got into trouble. Joining me today is longtime boxing analyst and writer Dan Raphael. Dan has been covering the sport for over two decades, 15 of which were spent at ESPN. Now a writer for Ring Magazine and the editor of Fight Freaks Unite, I thought, what better person to talk to than Dan about one of the most complex characters in the history of American sports? documentary really paints a picture of what Brownsville looked like, at least when Mike Tyson was growing up as a neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York, where he grew up. And I think I want to start off with asking you, how do you think his childhood shaped him into the boxer that he eventually became? Oh, I don't think there's any question that that was a huge part of it. I mean, of course, you have to have uh, the talent, the athleticism, 
uh, and that has to be brought out of you from you know your hard work, your trainers, etc. But the mentality, I think, more than the physicality of being a professional boxer, certainly was ingrained in him by the circumstances they grew up in—a tough neighborhood, very difficult circumstances. Had to fight for everything you had. I mean, as Mike uh, or the people in the documentary talked about, uh, he was bullied as a kid. Um, you know, he 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 wasn't that big of a guy. Um, never was, even when he was the heavyweight champion of the world. He certainly was a lot smaller than a lot of other big contenders, but he he could really punch and and uh, he discovered that as a as a youth. Uh, you know, they tell the story in the documentary about uh, the the incident that he had with an older, a bigger kid that that tried to take and then killed one of his pigeons, and he just let loose on the guy. And uh, that was sort of like the turning point where you know he realized you know what he could do. And then you know, fortunately for for various other circumstances. Uh, he wound up in in the home of Customato, the famed boxing trainer, because yeah. of people that he had met at the at the reform school that he had been to in upstate New York. So uh, there's no doubt, though, that the that the circumstances in that neighborhood and how he grew up, um, more mentally than physically, definitely uh, stoked his uh, ability to become a boxer and, and put that fire inside him to do that. Just watching the documentary, I think it jogged my memory about a lot of the aspects about his childhood that I had completely forgotten or actually didn't really know. The fact that he was arrested something like thir- more than 30 times before the age of 13. And, you know, they also talked about his his familial upbringing. His biological father wasn't in the picture. His mom was abusive, also an alcoholic and would hook up with guys. And he would be, just be exposed to all this stuff, drugs, sex, crime, violence, and that becomes his new baseline for normal. So, you know, it just makes me think that going from that environment and into the ring, becoming a boxer is almost, it almost would, I would think is, is simple or easy, at least compared to the circumstances that he grew up in. Well, I think, and Mike is not the only boxer that would that would have that mentality. I'll give you an example. I remember, I don't know if I ever had that particular conversation with Tyson, even though I have interviewed him numerous, numerous times over the years. One of the boxers that I covered uh, is the late Johnny Tapia. Johnny Tapia had, if Mike Tyson had a, a bad upbringing, Johnny Tapia, you know, he, Johnny Tapia's upbringing made Tyson look like he grew up, you know, in, a, in, a, in plush circumstances and wonderful surroundings. Johnny Tapia, you know, used to talk about how the only place that there wasn't chaos and there was like a sense of reason for him was when he was in the ring, even like he was at his mm. calmest, even if another person's throwing punches at him, because he could control that environment. He knew how to deal with what was coming at him. He was well-trained and, and he was hungry uh, to go do what he had to do. So uh, the, the, the realm of boxing besides just inside the ring. And I think Tyson was like this for sure. Certainly before, um, you know, a lot of the chaos began well after he was champion is that the training element of it, the, the regiment that you do on a daily basis, uh, the order in which you do it, it's like the only thing that gives some of these fighters structure in their life. So he knew, as did Tappy, who talked about it extensively, I know at whatever time in the morning I'm going to do my road work. I know at this time I'm going to have you know, a meal. I know at this time I'm going to do my training. I know at this time I'm going to have uh, time to take a nap or rest. And it, it's that... Uh, element of a, of a schedule that kind of can keep them out of trouble. And I think for a long time, when Tyson was a young uh, boxer coming up, you know, especially in the early days of his career, if you take a look at his record, he was fighting every few weeks. You know, he didn't have months and months off between fights to go get in trouble or do things he shouldn't be doing. That that kept him on the straight, narrow path 
because you have that that schedule and that structure. And it's when you don't have that that mm. sometimes uh, you find trouble or trouble finds you because of your fame and, and the money and the and the and the people that you surround yourself with. So uh, boxing in a lot of ways, and Mike Tyson is not the only one. I've heard it from a million fighters over the years. They'll tell you that, you know, as hard of sport it is and how much damage they may take, it actually saved their lives in many ways. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely a common theme that you hear, not just among boxers, but across uh, across the span of, of the athlete population is having that sense of structure, also having that sense of purpose and community, developing an identity. It, it really fuels and allows you to focus on one thing. And then once that's taken out of your life, then we start seeing some issues. So you talk about the control and structure, and we'll, we'll dive at, into that a little bit more as we talk about Customato, who was a huge mentor and and influential figure in Mike Tyson's career. But you talk about the other boxers that come from similar backgrounds and really disadvantaged and horrible backgrounds. But what's interesting is I had the opportunity to interview Shannon Briggs um, last, yeah, last year. And so to think that three heavyweight champions all came from one neighborhood in Brownsville, New York, where you got Mike Tyson, Shannon Briggs, and also Riddick Bowe. It's fascinating. And I, I'm curious because you've been covering this sport for so long. Is this normal? Is it happenstance? What is this? You know, it's not normal. Okay, that's the first thing. But the, the, you would have champions come from the same spot. It's not so much that they came from the same neighborhood, is that it was in a fairly short period of time. Tyson winning the title in, you know, 1986, and then Riddick Bowe coming along, you know, not that long later in the early 90s, and then Shannon Briggs a little bit later in the later 90s. Uh, so it, that's a little unusual, but you can go through and, you know, would it be, it's not, I mean, maybe it's not the same neighborhood, but there's a lot of great champions that come from like Los Angeles area that have come from the Detroit area that have come from Mexico city that have come from London. There are certain places, uh, that have been a a hotbed for boxing, New York city, particularly at that time in like the, in the eighties, uh, into the nineties, you know, there was a lot of boxing gyms and a lot of developing talent. And, uh, you know, in terms of, them all being heavyweights, yeah, it's unusual, um, but they they all became heavyweight champs, and it was, uh, you know, not a. I can't say it's a common thing, but yeah, it's New York, and because New York is New York, it gets more attention because <laughs> it's the biggest media market in the world. So when those guys were coming up, um, they were on, you know, in all the newspapers and the tabloids on, on the radio, you know, on uh, local television. So it was like it seemed, I think, bigger than maybe it actually was. Mm. You mentioned that you've interviewed and, and talked to Mike Tyson a, a number of times. What were those conversations like? Oh, I mean, I've interviewed Mike a million times because when I first started on the boxing beat, now his heyday was over at that point. He was no longer the champion. Um, I covered the last handful of his fights starting in 2000. My first interactions with him were he was, I had, there was a couple of fights he had that were overseas that I didn't travel for, but I was still writing about. But the first time I covered him in person and met him in person, um, was prior to his fight with Andrew Bellata in 2000 that took place in uh, at the pa- at the I believe now no longer there the Palace at Auburn Hills where the Detroit Pistons played for so many years uh, and it turned out to be a, a second round uh, no contest Tyson stopped Bellata it should have been a TKO he later had a, a positive drug test for marijuana which was against the rules at that time and so the result was changed but um, you know I've I've been asked about that interaction with Tyson I, I tell people the first interview I had with him was. And I've interviewed every, you know, pretty name fighter that you could think of for the past 20 plus years. 
That first interview I ever had with Mike Tyson, October of 2000, was one of the worst interviews I ever had in the history of my career. And that's not even just including boxing, because before I covered boxing, you know, I was covering college sports and, and, uh, and minor league baseball, and I had covered high school sports for years, et cetera. That interview was an absolute disaster. And I tell people, of all the interviews I've had with Tyson, that was the only negative experience I ever had with him. All of my personal huh. interactions with Mike, whether it's in person or on the telephone or in any manner at one of his fights, has always, beyond that one incident, been you know, pleasant. Not just like easy, but pleasant. I mean, no problems. Uh, you know, I could tell you the story if you have time, but it was, a, it was just a disaster, that interview. Yeah, I'm curious what was so disastrous about it. I'll give you the short version. So the Galata fight was on Showtime pay-per-view and they were trying to promote the fight, of course, the network. But Mike was not wanting to do any interviews. He was very belligerent. He was very standoffish like normal. And he just wasn't going to do any print interviews. I was working at USA Today at that time. I was probably, you know, seven, six, seven months into my time at the paper. I'd started earlier in the year in 2000. So he didn't, Mike didn't know me. I was at least a fresh face. I had struck up a relationship with Shelly Finkel, his manager. And, uh, they wanted him to at least do one interview for a big outlet because they were trying to sell the pay-per-view. And let's be honest, it wasn't because I was a good guy. It's like I worked for a big outlet. They wanted some publicity for this fight that wasn't exactly the best fight of all time. Um, so I'd, or I'd worked it out with Shelly Finkel weeks ahead of time that, that he would do an interview with me. It was going to be a USA Today cover story, the big front page sports section. And uh, I flew to, the fight was on a Friday. I flew to Detroit like on a Monday. We are supposed to meet up maybe Monday night, do the interview, give me plenty of time to write the piece. And I get there and uh, Shelly says, listen, Mike's not in the mood. You know, he'd rather do it tomorrow morning. Let's, why don't we meet? We're, you know, we weren't staying at the same place. We'll meet for breakfast and we'll do the interview. I said, okay, that didn't seem unreasonable. I was like, no problem. Kept getting pushed off, kept getting pushed off. Mike wasn't in the mood. Now I go to the press conference for the final press conference. I get introduced to Mike before the press conference in person. Totally fine. Everything was good. We're going to do the interview after the press conference. Okay. Uh, now, Finkel says to me after the press conference, Small change of plans, which is never a good thing to hear as a reporter. Um, <laughs> we're gonna. Mike wants to go to the gym, so we're gonna do the interview at the gym. I'm thinking, okay, that's cool. So we get in a separate. I go in like they put me in like a limousine with me and like a couple other people on the team. We go to the and Mike is in a different car. We go to like the most downtrodden area of Detroit you could think of. It's the old Brewster Recreation Center where Joe Lewis used to train back in the way back days. And Tyson's gonna. And I didn't think he was gonna do anything other than maybe shake out. Turns out Mike wants to spar. Now that's, for those who don't follow boxing on a regular basis, to spar like three days before the fight, four days before the fight, highly unusual. Usually by the time you get to the local place where you're fighting, your camp is wrapped up. You shake out, you stay uh, you know, active and maybe uh, hit the mitts, but you don't actually spar. Tyson wanted to spar. So we go into the gym. It's only Tyson and his team and me. They don't let anybody else in. I sit myself on a metal folding chair at the ring apron and I watched Mike Tyson absolutely beat the living crap out of Jeff Pegues, sparring partner. I mean, just destroyed this poor guy for four rounds. And Tyson gets out of the out of the ring. He's sweating. He's snarling. He's an absolute, like, in a frothy mess. And Finkel says to me, okay, Dan, come on. We're going to go to the interview. Oh, come on. <laughs> I think this is going to be awesome. <laughs> now, keep in mind, the whole idea of the interview, this is going to be the kinder, gentler Tyson. We're supposed to be, like, in his hotel room. It's supposed to be me. Finkel, the publicist, and like his trainer, who at the time was uh, Tommy Brooks, uh, an outstanding boxing trainer for a long time. And, and this is going to be nothing like that. I just have a bad feeling this is not going well. We go down into the basement of a gym that was already looked like it was about to fall down. And 
it was like like see the the movies where they have like the light hanging over the the prisoner and the and the and the cops like interrogate him. That's what yeah. the basement was like. There was literally a light hanging from the ceiling, just like that. And they sit me down on another metal folding chair. Tyson's like you know a foot away from me. Our knees are touching each other, and Shelly's <laughs> there, and Tommy's there, and and the publicist is there. And then he's got all his guys from the gym, like Zab Judah, who was on the undercard, and some of the other sparring partners, and you know his crew. And they're all like sitting behind me, like trying to intimidate me. And Finkel's like, all right, let's go. And it started off okay. And I don't remember the exact question that I asked him, but Mike started to get upset. He started, you know, just losing his mind. He threatened me several times. He he said he hated white people. He, you know, he, he had at least two or three threats in there. He started talking about other journalists that I uh, knew that he made threats to. And it got so bad that to the point where we're, in, we're like 10 minutes in, 15 minutes max. And he starts poking me in, in, the, in the chest with his finger. And oh. he, it started to get really out of hand, at which point he stood up and he like threw the chair against the wall. And the publicist and the Tommy Brooks and everybody stood up and said, all right, that's it. And I turned off my recorder. And it's, do you ever get to think about like uh, they, they're going to take like the, the president has got to get moved because there's like an assassination. Like they grab him, <laughs> they, they hustle him out of the room or the vice president. Yeah. I'm, and I'm a big dude. And like Tyson had his security detailer. They like lifted me by the elbows practically. And we oh went up gosh. the stairs and they put me back in the limo. And I'm like, what the hell just happened? And I sit there for a couple minutes and then uh, Finkel and Tommy Brooks and another one of Tyson's longtime camp guys, Jay Bright, uh, and they all get in the limo. We, it was such a mess. We didn't even like bring up what just happened. <laughs> and Finkel's like, drop us off at our hotel, which was very close. And I was staying at a different hotel, go and then bring Dan back to his hotel. Meanwhile, the driver gets lost. We're driving around in like Detroit. He doesn't know where to find my hotel. I call up my, my, my best friend on the phone. I'm like, you're never going to believe where I am. I'm in Tyson's limo. Just had the worst interview of my entire life. So fast forward. So I go back to the hotel when I finally get there and I call up the office and I tell them what happened. And uh, now I'm on deadline. Now I got to write because we've already missed a couple of days because of the fact that the interview had gotten put off. Long story short, the, the, the kinder, gentler Tyson story does not come out. The next day on the front page of USA Today is the gigantic headline that says, full force Tyson, quote, I hate everybody. No way. That was the quote in the story that they made the headline. It was just an insane moment in my career to, to have that happen. But then I tell people also, if you fast forward four months later, that was in October of 2000. You fast forward to like, I want to say like March of 2001. I was in Las Vegas uh, to cover the Evander Holyfield, John Ruiz heavyweight title fight. And there was a lot of conversation that the winner of that fight was going to fight Tyson for the title, either another, a third bout with Evander, who obviously they had had the, the very infamous ear biting issue in the second fight or John Ruiz. And they were all with Showtime network at that time. And so Showtime brought uh, maybe six or eight writers to Tyson had this big mansion off the strip. And we were going to meet with Tyson and talk to him about the prospect of fighting the winner of uh, the fight that was coming up that weekend. And so we're all kind of mingling around this gigantic open area, having like brunch, like they brought in like bagels and coffee and stuff. And I'm standing there talking to like one of the other writers and we're waiting for Tyson to come out of the room and show up. And so after a little while, he walks out and he walks right over to me. And I was standing with another couple of the writers and uh, his and his trainer and he comes over to talk to us and he looks at me, he doesn't say a word to me. He just looks at me, gives me like the once over. And then he takes his back of his hand, he smacks me on the chest and gives me the nod. Like he remembered like the terrible, the terrible situation from Detroit. Oh my gosh. And it was sort of my, my take on that whole situation. Like, don't sweat it. It's cool. We're good. 
And honestly, I never had another issue with Tyson the rest of the time knowing him for the last 20 years. I feel like that experience is emblematic of how he just, how his, his entire journey has played out where there's a lot of highs and there's also a lot of lows. I think it was characteristic of his athletic success, his personal life. Maybe it sounds like his relationship with Robin Givens, with maybe everybody else. But I mean, that was just how his childhood played out and also how his life played out because, you know, there were, there were a lot of highs, there were a lot of lows for him. And he had a lot of, yes, a lot of negativity with media members over the years without question, uh, particularly some of the the very harsh columnists in the New York tabloids, uh, more so than anybody else that really, you know, uh, peered into his life like a, like a, under a microscope and really tore him apart for a long time. Uh, some probably deserved, some probably not so deserved. So, but he always had, you know, in the times I covered Tyson's fights, you know, which is from that uh, Galata fight all the way to the end of his career, he always sat with the press before his fights. I mean, really? and had these long philosophical discussions, like small groups. I remember being like in Louisville, Kentucky, for example, he was fighting uh, Danny Williams, a fight that he ended up being upset in and losing and, and going to his hotel with a handful of other reporters the week of that fight. You know, and what we thought was going to be like, you know, 15 minute immediate availability where he would give you a few uh, sound bites about, you know, what he was thinking or feeling going into this bout turns into like an hour of like almost like a therapy session. And you really get tremendous insights that what he thought about whatever was going on. And it it was like a stream of consciousness almost. And I I witnessed that not only uh, before that fight, but you know, at times before when he, when he fought, uh, the last few fights of his career, the one fight where he didn't do a lot of press and he kind of shied away was going into the Lennox Lewis fight for the heavyweight title, which the hat that I'm wearing. Nice. But Tyson, you know, he, he had his moments with the press where I think he looked at a lot of us like it was a therapeutic situation. You know, I remember when he got knocked out in his, what turned out to be his last official fight against Kevin McBride in 2005. Now that fight took place in Washington, DC. I live in, the, in Northern Virginia, in the DC area. So I was around the gym leading up to that fight and spent some time with him and, and in his camp. And then after the fight, and he just poured his heart out every time he saw him. Like, you know, I remember mm-hmm. sitting with him and, you know, just on any topic, I, mean, I did a thing for, I was working at ESPN at this point and did the thing we called it. A, uh, it was because 2005 was Tyson's 20th year as a professional. So we did like a series of stories like Tyson's 20 years. And one of them was uh, a take on that notion was, uh, Tyson on 20 topics. And so I sat with him at, at the gym in, in, uh, in, in Washington, D.C., where he had been uh, doing his training the last you know week or so before the fight. And, and just, you know, we riffed on like m- many subjects. I just cut it down to 20 different ones. And he had all kinds of inter- interesting things mm. to say about, you know, pick a topic, whether it was the marriage to Robin, working with Cuss, getting knocked out by Buster Douglas. I mean, it was a whole litany of, uh, of subjects, some professional, some personal. And, uh, you know, Mike never shied away from a tough question in that respect. I always give him credit for that. He, if you ask him about the darkest moments of his career or his life, he would answer. You know, you might not like the answer, but he would answer. I mean, I think watching the documentary and and I've never sat down with him. So clearly you have a better, uh, you have better insight into that. But I think clearly there's this other side of him, this softer side, this philosophical side. It sounds like something that he picked up from Customato that that is there. I just think his childhood and everything that he experienced really kind of tainted all of his perspective on life. And I think one moment uh, that really stands out to me was that clip in 1982 when he was about to compete in the U.S. Junior Olympic Boxing Championships. And he was about to fight and he starts crying. And I think he was with Teddy Atlas, right? And he starts saying, he turns his back to the camera and he says, 
I remember when we first started, everyone likes me now. What if I don't win? People won't like me anymore. And it was just this sweet, vulnerable, intimate moment from a guy that's probably, I don't know what, 200 pounds, you know, of pure muscle. And it was just this moment where I was like, he was a kid. Yeah, he was a kid. And you also realize that all he really wanted was just for people to show him attention and show him love. And and that's something that Customato gave him. Oh, without question. I mean, that was a, that was a huge part of it. I mean, uh, you know, when Cuss, as they talked about in the documentary, the first time he saw him work out, he was telling people like when he, when he watched what he did as a remember when he did that, he had no formal, um, uh, training in boxing. You know, there's a, there's a big difference between being a tough guy in the street and maybe getting into a street fight and knocking a guy out. than then the, the highly skilled, and uh, control you need to be a professional boxer. But when Cus saw that and then, you know, said to people around him, like that kid, you know, I see a future heavyweight world champion, you know, he could, re- you know, just see the future almost. Uh, mm-hmm. But it didn't just happen. I mean, he had to put, Tyson had to put the work in, but because uh, Customato and the folks in that, in that gym, uh, Teddy Alice included, and Kevin Rooney later were paying attention to him and, uh, you know, treating him like a star because they thought he could become, uh, a heavyweight champion of the world. And that means, you know, becoming a, a superstar and making a lot of money uh, that he was able to, you know, live that life and, and have that attention. And it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, when he won the title, I mean, uh, as they say in the documentary, I forget who said it, but he, you know, he was one of the most, if not the most famous athlete in the world at that time. Yeah, You know, he could, yeah. there's very few boxers or athletes period, no matter what, that could go anywhere in the world any corner of the world, any country and be known if they just, if you plop them down in the middle of the street, you know, Muhammad Ali, of course, at his time, you know, maybe a Michael Jordan at some point, but Mike Tyson was at that level where you could have stuck him in, you know, in Siberia and put him walking down the street and people would recognize who he was anywhere. And then even to this day, because he's so, you know, he's been around for so long um, and he's branched out, not just, you know, a lot of people now know him not as a, they know he's a former boxer, but they know him because he's, you know, uh, does the podcast or he's got the tattoo or he's involved in, you know, in the marijuana business, or he's been in the, in the, in a couple of movies that he's as every bit as famous now, uh, just for different reasons. And, you know, he's, he's, he can go anywhere and be, and people will, people will gravitate towards him. And here's the thing about Tyson. Mm-hmm. He's done some terrible things in his life, obviously. I mean, he served three and a half years for raping a woman. And if you can get past that, um, and I think everybody deserves a second chance, but if you just, just hang out with Tyson, and it's not like under a pressure situation. He's a very likable guy. I mean, that's just my honest feeling about it. He's a very likable guy when, when you talk to him like a regular person. That's the key, right? If you can get past the part that he is a convicted felon, but more importantly, a, a convicted rapist. And, you know, he spent time in prison for three years. And, and it's amazing to watch to look back because for me, it was a blur. I was in high school at the time. So I remember all these pieces of information. But for me, it was able to just squash everything into four hours and see the sequence of events because I I can't remember how everything played out. And so it is pretty crazy to think that he, he rose to stardom and was at the top of the world, goes to prison, is convicted, charged and convicted, comes out, and it's almost like he doesn't skip a beat. And I'm just wondering if you think the reception would have been different today in 2021 with social media and different coverage versus the 90s? That's a very good question. I, I suspect that it would be because people, rightly so, and maybe they were, they should have been more so at the time, 
people of all walks of life, older, younger, male, female, whatever nationality, color, or whatever, there is more of a sensitivity, I think, towards uh, things like what he did, rape, sexual assault, Me Too, those types of things uh, that have occurred. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying he wouldn't have gotten a second chance. I think that's one of the basic foundations of the United States that, you know, if you own up to your mistake, you do your time, you know, mm-hmm. even you do get another opportunity. Maybe it's not carte blanche. You know, people are going to look at you closely and you better not screw up, but you would get a second chance. Tyson, of course, was one of the types of folks that because he generated so much money for other people that he was inevitably going to get another chance. But it might, I think it would have been different now than it would have been. And keep in mind, by the way, it wasn't just that he went to prison uh, uh, for that case. He also spent time in jail for a road rage incident where a road rage incident where he beat somebody up. He bit off a chunk of Evander Holyfield's ear, which I remember at the time was like literally the most heinous act anybody had ever seen anybody commit in the field of play in any sport. That he could come back from that and continue his career and fight for the heavyweight championship again after that against Lennox Lewis. It just shows you uh, what people can overcome. And there's, you know, he was a star. So he was, he got another chance because people wanted to see him perform. Um, I think towards the end, they kind of, it wasn't really about seeing Mike be the best boxer he could be, but they kind of were interested to see what was the train wreck that was going to happen associated with his events. Yeah. Um, you know, unfortunately my time covering Tyson as an active fighter was around that last chapter, that last act of his professional career where he was already past his prime and it really had become kind of the Mike Tyson circus. Um, you know, when I was growing up, of course, and, and, and watching him, you know, at, at, in, in the heyday, you know, he was at one time, he was a great fighter that didn't last very long. Um, and I was in a situation where I knew of Tyson probably along before the average sports fan knew about him because I grew up in that upstate New York area where he was a, a local superstar way before he ever was fighting for heavyweight championships and fighting on major TVs because he was fighting locally and so it was always in the local newspaper where I grew up. It was always on the local news. So we knew of Tyson as a younger fighter. And to see him go from where he went, uh, where he started, to like you mentioned, to that apex, and then the gigantic fall from grace, and then rise again, another fall. I mean, it, the fact that he's still around, uh, doing his thing, uh, popular, and, and with a certain sense of peace about him today, is kind of a miracle. Like if you ask Mike, he'll tell you he never thought he'd live past 40. Now he's in his fifties. Uh, so, and he's had his own tragedies also, besides the things that he's done badly, you know, he suffered through the death of a daughter, uh, a horrible situation and a very freak accident, a young daughter, you know, probably about, I want to say maybe like eight or nine years ago. Um, you know, he's had his own, uh, difficult moments that haven't necessarily played out in public, like so much of what he's done as a professional. Uh, he's a very complicated individual. Yeah, he is a very complicated individual, but I think he's complicated for and for good reason. You know, you talk about a lot of the tragedies, um, his his four year old daughter dying in a freakish accident. I think it was it was connected to a treadmill, but also when he was younger, his mother passes when he's sixteen years old. Customato who takes him in like, and, and assumes his father figure role and brings him in into his stable with other fighters at his mansion in New York. He dies when Tyson is 18 years old. And then his co-manager several years later, Jim Jacobs also passes. How do you think all of that affected Tyson and how would things have been different? And if any one of those people, including Cuss, had hung around for several more years? I think a fall was going to be inevitable yeah. just based on the volatility of Mike's uh, personality and just the type of person that he is. Mm. And I think they mentioned it like this in the documentary. 
the one that really opened the doors and let him loose, where it was almost, you knew that there was going to be a downfall, was when Jacobs died. They were co-managers. It was Jimmy Jacobs and it was um, uh, Bill Caton. But the one that Mike had the relationship with on the personal level, who I who he liked and, and vice versa, really was Jimmy. Jimmy was the calmer, gentler, nicer, more personable guy. Caton was, not to say Caton was a bad guy by any means, but Caton was more of the cold uh, business person type who you know, was just there doing the numbers and making the deals. Jimmy was the one that had the real personal relationship with him. Um, so had Caton been the one to pass, but Jimmy had still been alive, I think they would have been able to keep things together for a lot longer. Once Jimmy died, uh, then you had that buffer between Mike and others was gone. And that's when Don King moved in. And they, of course, have their uh, ups and downs in their relationship. And so I feel like, you know, yes, he was able. It was very difficult for him when uh, certainly when any when his mom died, even though there was a difficult upbringing. Um, of course, when Cus passed, um, you know, and it wasn't that much longer after Cus's death that he fulfilled the prophecy and became the youngest heavyweight champion in the history of boxing. But really, it was the death of Jim Jacobs uh, a couple of years later that that had probably the biggest impact on sending his career uh, careening off the tracks. Now, he did keep it together long enough to continue to be champion for quite a while after uh, Jimmy Jacobs had passed away. But he wasn't training as seriously. He was you know, caught up in all the hoopla and the money. And you know, when you don't train and you don't take your opponent seriously, and you go and you face Buster Douglas, who was a quality heavyweight, but you know, never had gotten to the the, the, the everything he could out of his potential, had his own personal issues like the death of his mother that sort of focused him on fighting this this big fight against Mike Tyson. He went out there and he beat him and uh, you know made history. And you know what, Mike Tyson, that was in what 1990. Tyson really, you know, he'll be the first to tell you he never was the same after that loss because that cloak of invincibility, mm-hmm. that that ability to petrify every single opponent before they even stepped into the ring where you might beat them on their way from the dressing room to the, to the ring, you know, that was kind of gone. It still happened a little bit, but, you know, talk to Evander Holyfield. He'll tell you that, you know, that Buster Douglas laid out the game plan on how to beat the bully. You bully the bully and he stood up to Tyson and then and ultimately defeated him and, and then defeated him again. So you think that was a turning point? Cause that was going to be my next question as you were covering Tyson and following his last run, because it seems as though as he has gotten older, as you just mentioned, there is this level of peace, this level of kind of like losing your edge. And I think that that just happens with maturity. That happens with age. You become a more compassionate with yourself and with others. And so my question was going to be, do you think that level of finding peace coincided with his downfall? Or do you think it was just the Douglas fight and that turning point where where it just clicked and he found himself not invincible? The Douglas fight, I think, was more in terms of his boxing career where the, you know, it was the downfall and it was never never recovered from that in a sense. He, you know, he did go on and win another title belt after that, but it wasn't really quite the same um, looking back on it. But in terms of his personal, first of all, you, you would hope that at age 54, you would have some element of maturity that's different than when you were, you know, in your twenties or thirties. I don't know, you know, I'm 50 years old and I'm certainly in a different place in my life at age 50 than I was when I was 25. I mean, I would hope so. That's the normal development of a human being. Absolutely. I also give a lot of credit to his wife, Kiki, for helping keep him, uh, you know, in a, in a good place. It seems when they got married, you know, I think his marriage with her now is, I don't know the exact number of years, but it's been quite a while. It, it feels like that's been one of the most stable relationships that he's ever had in his life mm-hmm. that, that she's been there. I, I'm not like in their home. I don't know their ups and downs. I'm sure there have been, but at least from the outside looking in, that seems like about the most stable relationship that he's had and has helped keep him, you know, in a good place. Um, but you know, he's become 
uh, I guess, in, in, at least in boxing, uh, somewhat of an elder statesman. You won't find another young boxer that hasn't gone and watched the Mike Tyson videos of when he was heavyweight champion and want to emulate that kind of style and, and knock the guys out and, 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 uh, and uh, you know, make their opponents fear them before they even get into the ring. Uh, you know, Tyson, I mean, the fact that ABC, which did a very nice job in the documentary, would be able to devote four hours of prime time to a guy who hasn't boxed for, you know, since 2005, who hasn't really been a top fighter for, you know, way longer than that, you know, is a testament to the staying power. I mean, there's a few athletes that have come along yeah. that, that have that grip on America. I mean, look, the Michael Jordan, they did the, the, the documentary, The Last Dance uh, on ESPN that did big numbers because everybody, you know, loved those Bulls teams and they were led by Michael Jordan. I mean, there's not that many athletes that can do that. There's a, you know, a similar long documentary that's that's going to be out in the fall about Muhammad Ali. Again, he's he's been dead now for a few years. He hasn't, you know, uh, he wasn't, he hasn't been a boxer for 30 years, uh, but he left a gigantic mark on society for different reasons than a Jordan or a Tyson, obviously. But, you know, people like nostalgia and, you know, people, you can't underestimate how much Tyson, like people just were in awe of what he could do. Like they would not miss a Mike Tyson, but it was the most exciting experience you could think of. I mean, now I was covering him when he was no longer champion, but I have to tell you, I mean, sitting in the ring, the uh, ringside media section, you know, in those moments before a Tyson fight, the, the, just the crackling electricity that would just go through the arena, your body, the excitement. And I've been at a lot of big fights. That's as good as it gets. And he wasn't even like a championship fight. <laughs> yeah. You have talked to him many times. You've been around him many times. You've covered him. But I think the one person that I would be most interested to talk to would be his longtime therapist. And that was the kind of like the shocking aspect. Of course, this is me, a, a PhD student in counseling psychology would obviously say that, but I mean, there, it doesn't get any more intimate and, and down and dirty than in the therapeutic setting. I mean, those are things that clients will often share with the therapist or counselor that they don't even share with their loved ones and their family and significant others. Um, if you had to ask the therapist a question or questions about Mike, what would you want to ask her? I have to say, to be honest about that, like, I feel like I know enough. I don't need to yeah. know the, the details. You know what I'm saying? Maybe the reporter in me would come up with some questions, but like, I'm good with what I know about Tyson. Like, I don't need to know more. I've already seen this man laid bare in front of the world so often for so long that I'm good. Let him have some privacy of his most innermost yeah. uh, feelings and, and traumas and things that have gone on in his life. Like, I feel like we've, we've actually gotten to know too much about Tyson in a way. Hmm. Part of that's on him because he's volunteered so much of it and he's lived so much of his life, you know, again, laid bare in front of the public. I don't need to know more about Mike Tyson at this point. I'm good. Wow. That's not something that you hear too often from a journalist or reporter. But with that in mind, what is the one aspect about Tyson's journey that you think we should be reminded of or do that doesn't get highlighted enough? Well, I think now because it's so many years past it and it's almost become caricatured when you see the highlights and this and that of, of his fights, et cetera, is that people really should understand that it was brief. Okay. It didn't last very long, but at his best, he was a great, great heavyweight champion. Now, he didn't have the staying power of some of the, you know, a Joe Lewis or, you know, or, or um, Muhammad Ali or, or others that have, you know, reigned for long periods of time in the sport. But on any given night during his heyday, he might have knocked out anybody who ever lived in the sport of boxing. I can very specifically remember. Now, again, I was, I was not covering boxing at this time, but back at that point, 
as my camera falls down here, uh, back at that point when he fought Michael Spinks and knocked him out in 91 seconds to retain the, the title belts, but also take over the, the lineal championship of the world, that there was real serious discussion amongst like very seasoned veteran media talking about Mike Tyson and was he the greatest heavyweight of all time? And so you can't really judge. And I say this all the time because people want to talk to, you know, where does this guy rank all time? Where does that guy rank all time? And I have to say, listen, you know, we think he might be here. We think he might be there, but you can't really say until you have the ability to look back on a career. I, I refuse to get caught up in ranking a guy's all time greatness in the midst of their career. You have to wait till it's over. And we now know that Tyson's career is long over that he doesn't probably rank as a top 10 all-time heavyweight. But for a brief period of time, you know, in the, in the mid to late 1980s, you know, on any given night, he was maybe the greatest heavyweight who ever lived. And I think that gets lost because so much of it is, oh, you know, he was in the hangover, he's got a tattoo, or he smokes weed, or he's a funny guy that, you know, speaks with a lisp, or, you know, he's had this problem or that problem. But the reason why he's famous is because of those moments when he was the greatest heavyweight on the planet. Mm. Well, Dan, I appreciate you hopping on the show and, and sharing all those personal details. I love the story of your first experience with him back in 2000. Um, that I will never forget about that. I won't either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you won't. But you know what? He's, he's about to turn 55. His birthday is in June. If you had the opportunity as we wrap up this interview, what, do you th- what would you tell him as he turns 55? I would say I'm glad you're doing well. I'm glad your life is stable. I'm glad you're enjoying your time, that you are able to make money now and not, you know, he's been through a terrible bankruptcy and lots of financial problems that, that I'm happy for him that he's made peace with what, what his life is. It certainly does. It does look like he's made peace with a lot of things. And that's, there's a lot to make peace with, uh, especially with his, his journey. But Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. A big thank you to Dan and to all of you for joining the conversation today. There are so many things to unpack with Mike Tyson's story, but one aspect that really stands out to me, which is addressed in part two of this documentary, is how he was physically and sexually abused as a child. Child sexual abuse can have a tremendous impact on its survivors, especially when it goes unaddressed and without support. Consider the fact that survivors of child sexual abuse are four times more likely than the average person to develop symptoms of drug abuse, four times more likely than the average person to experience post-traumatic stress disorder as adults, and three times more likely to experience a major depressive episode as adults. Now, I'm not saying this to excuse anything Tyson did. It's merely to point out how one traumatic event during a person's childhood, like being sexually or physically abused, can cause an unraveling of issues much, much later in life. I highly encourage you guys to check out this four-hour, two-part documentary, Mike Tyson, The Knockout, as ABC News chronicles the climb, the crash, and the comeback of Tyson's boxing career. Part one is currently streaming on Hulu, and part two airs Tuesday, June 1st on ABC at 8 p.m. Eastern, and will be available on Hulu the following day. As always, feel free to let me know your thoughts on everything we talked about today. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at prim underscore and I'll talk to you guys next time.